uh, I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's so gross. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> you hear me now? Uh, <laughs> oh! <laughs> oh my god, I hate that. <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome to Big Oofs Only. I'm Anson. I'm Kim. And this week we are talking about a relatively more serious crisis. It's very timely. So we are going to be talking about the recent media coverage slash lack of media coverage of hate crimes against Asian Americans and kind of about our experience learning to try to take the Asian American identity seriously and how you think about that when it feels kind of like no one's paying attention or it feels like making a big deal out of anti-Asian racism is somehow detracting from uh, talking about racism against Black people and just kind of navigating that. So um, I'm just going to read off a few of the incidents or the more publicized ones that have occurred in the last week or so. Um, This is not a fully comprehensive list. As Anson already mentioned, this episode is a little bit darker and more serious than our typical episode. So if you are Asian American and you feel like you don't need to hear about these incidents again, feel free to skip ahead to about 3 minutes and 30 seconds. But on Sunday, January 31st, um, a 91-year-old man was pushed to the ground in Oakland, Chinatown, and the same attacker attacked a 60-year-old man and a 55-year-old woman later, um, and the woman was knocked unconscious in that incident. On Thursday, January 28th, so this is slightly before that, an 84-year-old Thai man was murdered while he was going for a walk. This um, was caught on video. A lot of these incidents were caught on video, but if it's going to be too violent for you to watch, I would recommend not looking at them. I don't want to butcher any of their names, so we're going to link them later. On Wednesday, February 3rd, a 61-year-old Filipino man's face was slashed on the New York City subway, and he had to get a lot of stitches to um, heal that, but fortunately, he is doing okay. Um, His wounds are so deep that he can't talk right now. Yeah. Um, On Tuesday, February 2nd, a 19-year-old boy named Christian Hall was fatally shot by police with his hands raised um, in the middle of a mental health crisis. And on Friday, January 29th, there were at least three more robberies in the Bay Area, all on Chinese-owned businesses or East Asian-owned businesses in Chinatown. And then on February 3rd, yeah, on February 12th, is Lunar New Year, and so people withdraw cash for a part of our holiday. And so a 64-year-old Vietnamese grandmother was robbed in San Jose while at an ATM withdrawing cash for the holiday. Um, And those are the ones that I have so far. There was also a Chinese man who had his vehicle stolen while he was driving for DoorDash. His one-year-old and his four-year-old were in the vehicle because he couldn't afford childcare, and so they were kidnapped in that incident. Uh, They were... Uh, found later but that did also happen yeah and obviously anti-asian um or like racially motivated anti-asian incidents have not just been occurring this week but have been happening throughout the pandemic as a result of or at least made worse by a lot of trump's language around the chinese virus or the kung flu so this has been happening for a while now 
Yeah, so a lot of it is originally directed at Chinese Americans, but because racists and also lots of non-racists uh, can't tell the difference between Chinese Americans and other races, uh, a lot of other East Asian and Southeast Asian people have also been the target of crimes. Yeah, so I think one of the frustrations that we've experienced in the last week or so is that we found that many people who are not East Asian or many people who even are East Asian are unaware that these incidents are happening and with such frequency. Like, I definitely knew that, you know, as an abstract concept that anti-East Asian sentiment was on the rise as a result of the coronavirus, but I feel like it wasn't really at the forefront of my mind because it hasn't really been on mainstream media, um, it hasn't been widely reported, and people really aren't like posting or talking about it. So it kind of fades, I think, pretty easily into the back of my consciousness. But especially this week, when we saw a big spike, it was really frustrating to see that a lot of news sources aren't even covering these pretty big incidents in which several people died. Yeah, I think I've been conscious of the fact that hate crimes have been spiking in a way where I'm like, mentally trying to prepare like if someone shouts at me in the grocery store or something I'm like trying to figure out what I would I don't know what witty like comeback I can say without inciting violence but in my head I think I, mm-hmm. I assumed a lot of the crimes were people shouting ignorant things and it's been kind of distressing to see how many of the attacks are on old people like I don't fully understand why they target older Asian Americans. I'm also surprised that they're happening around Lunar New Year. I genuinely did not know that other people knew when Lunar New Year even really was. I don't think they're like, oh, holiday season, time to commit some hate crimes. I I suspect it's that there are more Asian people who are out and about because they're like, because they're probably mm-hmm. staying home mostly and then they're doing their shopping yeah, that makes or sense. going to Chinatown for something now. I think it's like only in the past few days that I've seen like anybody who's not Asian or not specifically like an Asian platform on social media or elsewhere even mention this. So that was kind of concerning. But then on the other hand, I've also seen some (laughs) members of the Asian community react to these crimes in kind of like a problematic way calling for more policing or at least the governments have been using anti-asian crimes as an excuse to increase or at least promote increasing police presence so to like add detail to your example basically a lot of the a lot of the crimes have happened in oakland california where there the chinatown's pretty big and there are a lot of asian americans and there are also a lot of black people in oakland and so the mayor of oakland has been kind of pointing to the Asian American anti-Asian American hate crimes and been like, hey, look, this is evidence that when you guys said defund the police, you were wrong, and kind of trying to pit Black Lives Matter against uh, Asian Americans in the community. Yeah, but that's not actually what we want. And a loss- also, a lot of Asian American people have a pretty deep-seated fear of the police or government institutions because of, I don't know, where they came from or the fact that many people are undocumented, you know, or low income and don't have very good experiences with the government or the police. So these aren't really solutions either. Yeah, and I think it just, it feels bad in a way to feel like 
that these issues are dismissed either explicitly or implicitly in people's minds as not relevant to them because it's not it's not against a group that they care about and it's also it gets weird because like daniel day kim is uh he's the asian guy from lost uh and he and another celebrity are offering $25,000 for the arrest of the guy who pushed, I think he pushed over the 84-year-old man yeah. is the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when they're doing that kind of very public, like, it counts as advocacy or activism, I guess. But it's also promoting the idea that, like, justice will be served when we find this man and arrest him and put him in prison, which is not ideal. Mm-mm. Yeah, so I feel like there's been a lot of tension recently between, like, the Black and Asian communities because of this, but it really doesn't have to be that way because I think I've seen a lot of infographics on this, so, you know, not my words, don't let me take credit for it, but ultimately the enemy is, like, is racism, is white supremacy. Um, It's not about Asian people and black people committing crimes against each other in one-off incidents. It's a lot more about racism in general and the way that we are forced to compete and see each other as competitors for resources because white people will never see any of us as belonging as long as white supremacy is around. Also, the claim that it's all black people committing the anti-Asian crimes... Yeah, just not true. ...is very contrived. Like, it's a very, like, oh, black on Asian crime. It suffers from the same fallacies that black on black or black on white crime suffer from, where in terms of populations, it's not accounting for the percentage that uh, these groups make up in the population. And also, a lot of times, it's probably black on Asian crime because they're both living in the, like, quote-unquote bad or poor neighborhoods and they encounter each other. Yeah, like, maybe some of it's racially motivated or in part racially motivated, But a lot of it might just be, like, some of these are robberies. Actually, a lot of them are robberies. And, like, crime, unfortunately, happens. And we just have to come together as communities to support one another when, like, unfortunate incidents happen. Yeah, it's not really a... It's not time. It's never time for a race war, but this is not a time to really... Like, it's not solved by blaming the other group and especially i think older asians generally already hold pretty negative stereotypes and oh so i joined clubhouse finally after having the invite for like a month because i was afraid of it because there's been a lot of weird harassment and stuff on it but uh daniel day kim and some other asian american uh kind of community leaders i guess were hosting a clubhouse talk about had to talk about how to deal with the anti-Asian American hate crimes. And they were talking about it. People brought up like, oh, we don't need to be pro-cop. And they're talking about what can we do advocacy-wise and community patrolling or like community accompaniment Mm -hmm. in Chinatown and stuff right now to make older people feel safe. And then suddenly they were like, now we have a guest. It's Lupe Fiasco. And I was like, I barely know who Lupe Fiasco is. I was like, I know he is famous. Uh, but I also know that he's not Asian, and I don't associate him with anything like this, so this is confusing. Chicago-based artist for anybody who doesn't know. Yes, so Lupe Fiasco uh, appears on Clubhouse. Clubhouse is all-voice-based, uh, and he starts talking, and he's like, hi, thank you for having me. And he starts explaining that like he, his dad has 
been a fan of like all the Asian martial arts for a long time and Lupe Fiasco grew up learning a lot of martial arts and so he has he's like yeah I have a lot of respect for Asian American culture and like when I was a kid growing up in Chicago my parents would take me to like the Chinese American parades and I just think that it's like I really love it and I'm I'm really proud to be able to like immerse myself in the culture and I was like damn Lupe Fiasco is a is an Asian American ally more than I would guess and I thought it was really interesting the way he phrased or something he brought up was that he's like, there's a lot of tension between the communities, between black people and between uh, Chinese American or generally Asian American people because they don't ever interact unless it's a situation of crisis or a situation of commerce in terms of either it being something really bad happening uh, either to one of the groups or to both of the mm -hmm. groups uh, or in like a sort of business scenario where it's a financial transaction and he was basically trying to make the point that generally there should be more cultural exchange at a deeper level and so that people can see more commonalities and it's less kind of like those ice cold uh sort of distrustful situations i really don't know how to facilitate that though like as you were talking i was like how would we even do that yeah i don't know how to do it at scale you know you could like as an individual be like hey let me share about my culture or something mm -hmm. but but then on a it seems hard to on a implement. significantly larger scale like how would that even be implemented well i guess thinking about chicago like chinatown and the south side mm -hmm. geographically close yeah conceptually very far apart <laughs> <laughs> and so i feel like if there could be something where I don't I don't know very much about the grassroots organizations that are related to the South Side or to Chinatown specifically, mm -hmm. but if they could do stuff together, I think a lot of times the community's needs are probably somewhat similar. Yeah, I do think one of the barriers to that that I've noticed is like I don't know, Chinatown tends to be a less wealthy area and population than I don't know, the suburbs and a lot of the stereotypes of Asians that you see about like model minority Asians who are upper middle class and um and like Chinatown doesn't necessarily fit into that and there are a lot more I think language barriers in at least Chicago Chinatown so like that can make it quite difficult for them to reach out to any community not just like the black community in Chicago and so like I wonder how that could be overcome I guess because I see notions of diversity or like cultural exchange um, events as something that exists primarily in slightly wealthier like upper middle class woke spaces you know where it is an intentional effort and there are actually financial resources available to make cultural exchange like that fun and exciting and to make things like that happen um, but I don't know if there are resources like that for less wealthy populations because there are never enough resources in general for less wealthy populations yeah that's very true and also like a lot of neighborhoods and areas are segregated because of historical like redlining and how zoning yeah. works and also because i do understand like you it's nice to be around people who are similar mm -hmm. to you and i do I totally understand when people want to cluster, especially when there's a language barrier and when you're so far from home to want to sort of not interact with other groups. I feel like sometimes it's not even like a an aversion to interacting with other people, though definitely that is a factor. 
But, like, I think about Chinatown, for example. Like, my family, we don't live that close to Chinatown, but we will drive the half hour, 45 minutes it takes to get there to buy specific ingredients for the food that we make. So I totally understand if Asian people want to live close to the grocery stores that have um, the food that they're comfortable with or um, near bakeries where they can easily access food from home because, I don't know, that just makes sense. Like, even if they did want to have a more diverse group of friends, like, maybe they don't have a car and the only way to access ingredients and materials and, like, even hair brushes or shampoo brands that they're comfortable with is to live in an area that's primarily Asian and therefore has resources that serves a primarily East Asian community. Yeah, I guess I also, like, I personally don't feel connected to Chinatown. We would go for, like, food sometimes, but then even even then that's, like, a commercial thing, you know? It's not like we have friends. Like, my mom doesn't have friends who are in Chinatown. It's like we would go because there's things that we can buy there that are familiar to us. So I think also we are, we as, like, suburban Asians Mm -hmm. also don't fit the we don't necessarily relate or fully understand the experience of people who grow up in Chinatown. Yeah, I definitely think it's like it's easy to see the East Asian, Southeast Asian, and maybe even South Asian experiences as like a kind of monolith. I think it's less common for South Asian just because white people see the physical phenotypical differences. But Like, even I frequently forget that the East Asian experience and the Southeast Asian experience is so diverse and so different. Like, my experience is not the same as somebody who lives in Chinatown or somebody who is Filipino-American or Korean-American or Vietnamese-American or Thai-American or any of that. And, like, growing up as an East Asian person in the suburbs in the Midwest is a very, very specific thing I found, (laughs) um, especially when I went to college and found other Asian people. And I was like, holy shit, (laughs) these people are not really all that like me. Um, So yeah, also taking into account like while we are all experiencing this kind of racism because other people see us as a big group that is part of the pandemic, Like, we are also experiencing the results of that very, very differently. Yeah, there's a difference. It's not only... There's the difference of where your parents or whoever immigrated, like, what country they come from and under what circumstances they came Mm -hmm. to America. Like, I think coming from post-war Vietnam or Korea is very different than coming from communist China. And I think coming from Japan now versus coming from Japan many years ago is really different. Mm -hmm. But then it's also wherever your family settles in America is different. It's also what gear your family came here. Like if you, your family were like interned in the, in the internment camps by FDR, that's like a really different life. Like you are many generations further away from Japan. Yeah, like if you had to experience Uh, executive order 9066 in your, with your like older relatives, like, and they suffered those consequences or they suffered that kind of internment or like those, that kind of racism from the United States government, that has got to be a different kind of generational trauma than, I don't know, my parents perceiving or being like raised in British colonies or experiencing the cultural revolution. Yeah, and, like, my parents came to the United States in the 90s, and so I think in my head I'm very guilty of assuming that when I meet Asian American people, like, their parents probably also came here recently. Mm -hmm. 
I assume that their parents are immigrants. I, I, I don't assume that they might be, like, second or third generation. Yeah, even though, like, East Asian people have a long history of coming to the United States for work for, like, many, many years, for, like, at least a century, probably longer, um, and have experienced, like, the Chinese and Japanese exclusionary acts and, like, racism because of the gold rush and all of that good shit. Yeah, and recently I've been thinking about Vincent Chin, who I feel like a lot of a lot of people never learned about. I, I don't know if I learned about him in school or if I just learned about him as a kid. Honestly, I had never heard of him until Anson brought it up, so I definitely did not learn it in school. Yeah, and I think it's weird because I think it's like the like it's a internment camps and then this are the two pieces of like Asian American history I like remember learning as a young child and basically so vincent chin was murdered in detroit he was beaten to death by two white men who were really upset that japanese people were they perceived japanese people as having taken away the auto industry's jobs and so they saw this chinese american man and beat him to death so they didn't even get the correct race to hate when they were committing their hate crime and this happened in 1982 and I think because the pictures I've seen of Vincent Chin are like in black and mm-hmm. white and the way we talk about history is always so removed. I was always like, oh, that was a long time ago. But I've been thinking about like 1982 is so recent, you know. It's really not that long ago. I I feel like if that happened, honestly, I guess similar things are happening. Like people are dying by hate crimes right now. But like that, like the idea of that happening and like being in america just sounds very uncomfortable like i want to feel safe and it's like hard to realize or be reminded that like sometimes you're just not and that i look different like i forget that i look different and that somebody might be mad at me for that yeah but then i think the not the wall but i guess the the big big qualm that we run into here is that you know, black Americans have been treated so much worse. Yeah. They were literally enslaved. They went through so much worse. And so it feels almost bad or weird to want to talk about anti-Asian racism because it's like, I, I'm saying that the thought of like one man being like beaten to death is terrifying. But every year we have so many just variations on the same story of Black Americans just freaking going about their daily lives and being stopped by the police, being shot, being um, being physically hurt. And so it shouldn't be, it's not like a big dick contest on who's being more oppressed by white supremacy, but I still think a lot of us feel like it's bad to talk about Asian American uh, racism yeah. because of that. I think also like even recording this podcast, like I'm very aware that it's Black History Month and here I am yeah. talking about anti-Asian racism. And I think because it's like, at least in my household, like it's a very like keep your nose to the grindstone, keep your head down. Like if bad things happen, don't talk about it. And if you don't talk about it, it's not really real and it'll go away. And you can always like work hard enough to make the racism go away. And like that's just not how that works. Um, and I think I also mentioned this in the next episode, but, like, the abundance principle means that, like, me talking about anti-Asian racism or Asian people talking about anti-Asian racism doesn't mean that anti-Black racism racism doesn't matter or that we're detracting from it. Um, Like, our attention 
unfortunately is a limited resource but like me talk me at least mentioning it is not like taking away from the experiences of black people and that's really hard for me to internalize honestly like I feel weird even saying that now yeah I want to note that I am uh I am prepared to rant about medical racism in one of our upcoming episodes of the podcast for Black History Month because y'all the shit was <laughs> like you don't I think even now we're like talking more about like Tuskegee and Henrietta Lacks but there is so much more just bullshit that yeah. uh we have that America has really done to black people and Black History Month is and also fat phobia being rooted in anti-blackness and just like pro-protestant white women aesthetics for some reason Ooh, we're gonna have a good episode yeah there's there's lots to talk about and a lot that i think we learned rather late and are still learning about but also to your point about being feeling weird yeah we had a lot of like oh no i don't know how to talk about this sort of conversations before this because it is weird it's but I think I'm guilty of in the past being like, oh, right now, obviously, we need to address anti-black racism. So once we can make that situation better, then we can talk about Asian Americans. But holy shit, we're never going to like, not that we're never going to achieve any progress, but we can't just like wait our turn in this horrible, horrible line that I'm imagining, you know, like these things have to be discussed in tandem. Yeah. And I also think it's like, it's not a hierarchy of, oh, this racial microaggression is less bad than this outright violent racist act. It's like, okay, yes, one of them is like horribly, horribly violent and it should be stopped, but like they're all part of the same problem. So confronting the microaggressions might actually lead to progress on the anti-violence front like it's not like oh you solve one and then that's just like one isolated issue that'll suddenly go away like anti-black policing is like if it's not isolated from the microaggressions that black people face that hispanic and latino people face that um south asian and east asian people face that muslim people face that everybody faces basically who's not white like these are all part of the same fabric and so confronting one is also in a way tangentially confronting another yeah and i think it also it affects public opinion Mm -hmm. when you discuss these things and public opinion sometimes matters to our government occasionally our congress cares about that when it's beneficial to them. As long as it's a good enough show that they can put on for us. Yeah. Not even bread. We only get the circus. Oh. <laughs> yeah, and something we were talking about earlier before we started recording was how I think because I associated anti-Asian hate crimes and aggression to be not not off, not as often violent. Like, I associated it, like... I've been lucky enough that mostly when people say things to me, it's like very dumb or it's just like, like it's, it just, it's just very clearly ignorant. And I, I've always been like, oh, haha, that's like a fun story. And like this person, you'll see these in the next episode too. Yeah. Like this person clearly hasn't thought very hard and then I just kind of move on. But 
looking back, I think I realize more how those things are kind of traumatic. And I also see how they point to broader issues with people's understanding of Asian Americans. And I see how it's it's like a self-minimizing of things that are important. Yeah. And I think it's also not that racism and misogyny and rape culture are the same thing, but I've like heard a lot about how like if you let the little things slide, especially with um, rape culture, then it leads to people thinking that the bigger aggressions are okay. And I think that's kind of where like you're coming from with the like we should confront even the small, not explicitly violent stuff because like eventually it could lead to somebody being like, well, if nobody stopped me with this, not because nobody stopped me, but like if you don't get it early, it could turn into something bigger and more violent. And, like, people could be physically harmed and not just, like, emotionally traumatized. Not that emotional trauma is any less bad. Also, I think our fixation on violence is also a fixation on immediate violence. It's violence that you can see, that you can see a video of. Mm -hmm. But we don't talk about enough. uh, There's a book about uh, health disparities in Chicago called The Death Gap, where basically the author tries to call it structural violence. And it's kind of like a slow burn, so you don't, it doesn't feel salient, but it's things like discrimination in housing, in the quality of water people get, in the quality of education they get, in the opportunities that are available to them, and sort of the stress of living in a white supremacist society that is literally visible in people's health. Mm-hmm. And that's also violence. That's That ends up becoming physical violence that affects people's lifespans and it affects their quality of life. But it's just not as notable to us because the scale becomes immense because it's millions and millions of people and because it takes years and years for that to surface. But you see it in the numbers in the black maternal health crisis and you see it in places like Flint and that kind of structural violence is built upon both the violent crimes and the stress of knowing that you could be violently assaulted. And also it's the stress of everyday people seeing you as different, seeing you as worse and treating you as such. Yeah, I think also, like, with that kind of violence, it's – the distance there is not even temporal. Like, yes, the immediacy – like, immediate violence is way more noticeable, but I also think, like, people in places of power and privilege and, like, financial wealth, they get to farm out their violence, you know? Like, if you are a rich person and you want somebody dead, you hire an assassin – Um, And that's, like, the clearest way that you can put it. But I think it's also, like, if you are a rich person and you don't really care if your employees die, then you can hire your lawyer to protect you from, like, being more responsible for the death of your employees. And that's, like, we don't really see that as violent, but, like, it is – it ends up with the same result. It's – there's also that distance of, like, getting other people to do your dirty work for you, getting structural racism, getting structural inequalities to do your dirty work for you. So, like, just because you're not the one literally stabbing somebody in that in the neck doesn't mean, like, you're not the one partially responsible for the violence and the death happening. Yeah, I guess to bring it, bring it closer to us and to make me more, to make me more feel better, to make me feel more bad uh i think being a like affluent suburb upper Mm -hmm. middle class person it can feel like oh i'm gonna be ethical by buying sustainable things or by uh you know supporting small businesses and that is good but you it's also really uncomfortable and hard to realize like almost i think everyone i know has amazon prime 
you know, and Amazon yeah. is a terrifying company that basically violates all its labor laws. They just had to pay like millions of dollars to the SEC for literally stealing their uh, delivery drivers wages that are already low. They've often prevented their employees from unionizing. And it's like, we're supporting that, you know, or whenever, whenever all the moms get together and they're like, we don't want this building in our neighborhood. And a lot of the sort of urban policy issues, they feel like they're just about you, but they're also about the people that you're keeping out. They're also about the people you're pricing Mm -hmm. out or actively trying to prevent from moving in. And when you try to make your schools a certain way, you are also contributing to these issues. I think to bring it even closer, closer to us and even more (laughs) uncomfortable, like we record this podcast on MacBooks. I own an Apple iPhone. There's shit in that phone that was mined probably like with children and is poisoning people's drinking water and farmable land, you know, like... Every day we are forced to make decisions where that are just filled with violence and it's incredibly hard to escape and like it doesn't make us any less responsible, you know, but it's also fair to acknowledge that it's really difficult to escape this system, not to excuse, you know, rich people who are literally just like, I don't care about my employees, like I'm in a position of power, but like us as like everyday consumers, like you can't always do everything that's perfectly ethical. Our antinatalism is showing so much. <laughs> uh, I get like I don't want to. I don't want to feel bad all the time for existing, you know. And I don't want anyone else to feel that way. Part of I, if anything, I guess it's like the luck of the draw of being born American is that you get to live like a lot of people, not everyone mm-hmm. in America, many people in America get to live a very nice, cushy life where you are indirectly causing a lot of structural violence that you will never get to see. But I think that's also, it makes me think often about how lucky I am to have been born in this situation. And I just want to say, like, I don't know, I think it should make you be more aware of how much of your life is luck, which I think we all, I don't know, I need to work on. I think most people do. And like, I don't think it works for everyone to just feel bad for something that they really can't mostly help. Although, obviously, things like, I don't know, eating less meat and trying to support big companies less and voting, I guess, help. But a lot of it, we're just kind of trapped in a hyper-capitalist hellscape. And I don't, I, I don't know, I don't want people to, I don't want people to take this the wrong way in that we're like, you should feel bad because you're always causing everything to be bad. But I also do want people to be aware of it because I think we're often so overwhelmed with uh, both stupid bullshit and important bullshit that it can be hard. It can be really easy to be like, I just don't want to think about any of it. I don't want to engage with any of it. Yeah. We are quite off topic now. (laughs) We're not that off topic. We just went broad. We zoomed out a little far. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I feel like I've read too much stuff that was just like, oh, God, everything's shit lately. Yeah. And also I've been like stressed about all these things happening and also like trying to learn constantly because I never know enough about what's going on or, you know, history of activism or <laughs> anti-blackness because there's always more to learn about anti-blackness. And yeah, where do we go from here, Anson? Please tell me, give me answers 
where do we go yeah. from here? Um, if I knew I wouldn't be on this podcast, well, maybe I would, but I probably wouldn't. I think it's worth mentioning. I think we need more Asian American politicians. Yes. But also, I don't even know how many, like, I don't even, I can name a couple. But I think also, like, just because they're Asian American doesn't mean I'll necessarily agree with their views. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Like Andrew Yang. I guess, yeah, yeah. It's like, I want more representation and I want less Andrew Yang representation. Yeah, like, I want Asian Americans that are, like, actually represent, actually, I just want more politicians that are representative of my views. And then if they happen to be Asian American, because we are a population within the United States, um, that would be nice. Yeah, I think, I kind of wonder, you know, because the stereotypes are in some ways true in that a lot of our parents are like, you want to get a safe job, get a secure job, get a well-paying job. And it's not a very, like, we're not a very, like, like, most people I know, their parents are not very politically invested, you know, so I wonder how that contributes. But anyway, I brought this up mostly so that I could express my distaste for Andrew Yang. So, (laughs) um, Andrew Yang in, like, April wrote this op-ed for the Washington Post in response Uh, to the spike in anti-Asian I know exactly what you're talking about, and it's so gross. Yeah, but he, yeah, I think every Asian person I know read this and was yeah. like, what the fuck? And then I don't know if anyone else Well, saw obviously this. somebody had to read it and tell Andrew Yang what the fuck before he published it, but nobody did. Yeah, no, I feel like maybe other people thought it was good. But basically his argument was, guys, there are all these hate crimes happening, but what we should do is we should assimilate harder. We got to prove that we're part of the community. And he's like, maybe wear some more red, white, and blue and, you know, go out and mm-hmm. donate and go protest and show. And basically he was arguing that we have to prove our worth to the community more in an effort to show the people who are about to commit hate crimes that we should not be hate crimed. <laughs> Oh, God. It's a very, like, it's a very, like, our parents' generation way of thinking about it, I think, that if you just try hard enough, it'll be fine. Yeah, and that it's like, oh, we, it's okay that we have to earn or prove our Americanness. We'll just play in that game, even though the game is rigged. Uh, It's very reminiscent of, as as a kid, I remember learning about Japanese internment camps, and one, they did not tell us about how bad they were. They were just like, we just moved all the Japanese people to a different place. And I was like, oh. I remember reading kid storybooks about how they played baseball in the internment camps. Like, what yeah. the fuck? Yeah, they were like, oh, we just we just moved them. They didn't mention that it was really sudden. It was against their will and that a lot of people's assets were seized. Yeah, their so property was just like, never returned. So they came back like after the war and were like, we have nothing. Yeah, so I feel like in school I learned, like, oh, yeah, we just, like, took the Japanese people and moved them somewhere else. And then they were so patriotic that they enlisted in the army to help us fight in World War II. And I was like, wow. I literally, in middle school, had to be part of a debate where we argued about whether or not Korematsu in Korematsu versus the United States was right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like, my teacher was like, well should Japanese people have been interned? And I was like, no. No. Why are we arguing this? What <laughs> the what in the world is going on right now? And like, I was Dan, like 12. Speaking of World War II-based microaggressions. In is that even a school? micro or is it macro? I think that's just an aggression. That's, that's pretty big, yeah. 
when I was in eighth grade, we had to make like a scrapbook about World War II and we had to choose different parts of World War II to research and uh, like write about. And so there was like a list of topics you could choose from. But I went up to my teacher to ask if I could research the Japanese occupation of the Philippines because uh, I thought it was interesting. It was something I'd never learned about uh, in regards to World War II, which is its own issue. Uh, but yeah, and I was like, oh yeah, can I talk about this? I think it's really important. There's definitely like photos and there's material about it that I can talk about. And he goes, yeah, Anson, I'm really glad you're embracing your heritage and learning more about your people. Oh, and I was Jesus like, Christ. What? I was like, wait, first, I'm not Japanese or Filipino, but second, I wouldn't be proud to learn about this as a Japanese person or as a Filipino person because it isn't a good point in history. Yeah, so that was uh, bad vibes. Bad I love vibes. how we, like, never even talk about the fact that, like, the U.S. still occupies Korea, South Korea, at the DMZ. Yeah, that's a that's its own compli- complicated geopolitical mess. I think also generally, like, the, the mix-up of East Asian and Southeast Asian countries it's just like wild that people are like you're all the same when Japan, Korea, and China just constantly are in a dance of hating each other and maybe threatening war. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of the Southeast a- Southeast Asian countries are full of ethnically Chinese people who like left and fled. And then there's Taiwan mm-hmm. that's just hanging out, trying its best to not get destroyed by mainland China and like building its own like great democratic society that no one wants to compliment because it's Asian. So we don't see it as good. Do you think that most people, white people in the U.S., have even heard of the rape of Nanking? Oh no way! No, no. Y'all look that shit up. Well, okay, okay. I feel like I've had a white man try to explain the rape of Nanking. <laughs> like one of those white hit, like one of those white history dudes has definitely tried to tell me about it. But other than that, I don't think I've heard a white person talk about it. Oh my but god, yeah. I hate that contentious history there. So it's kind of whack that everybody gets confused for one another here in the states. Yeah. And also, like, uh, a big movement in Asian American politics that I feel like very few people outside of Asia, even in Asian America, uh, have heard of is, like, the movement for data disaggregation. Uh, Basically, people pushing for the U.S. government to, and for other organizations to release their data, not just as Asian American as a category, but to break it down into, like, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Mm -hmm. Filipino, Thai. Yeah. And... A lot of people might think, oh, that's not that important. There are not that many people. You probably don't even have enough data. But it is really important because those groups are very distinct. Uh, the like Asian Americans have are the demographic with the largest income inequality. And for example, Filipino nurses have been one of the hardest hit demographics in the coronavirus pandemic. And that's not something that can easily be talked about if you're just looking at Asian Americans as a sweeping category. I think it's also really relevant in education spaces because a lot of like data has shown that um, the minority myth only applies to a very certain sector of Asian East Asian American people, maybe even just East Asian American people in general. But like there are people, there are certain demographics that are excluded from that and they tend to be, you know, lower income, fleeing from dangerous situations, you know, like not the wealthy, educated East Asian immigrants. So yeah, so a lot of, like, Asian American people aren't getting the resources that they need because of the lack of data desegregation. 
Also, it just kind of feels bad when you look at a graph or something and it's like black, white, other or black, white, unknown. And you're like, where are all the Hispanic people and where are all the Asian people? Or Middle Eastern people or like literally everybody else. Yeah, it feels it's it's weird because it's like in a lot of ways, being Asian American is to be unseen Whereas being a lot of the other minorities is often to be targeted and directly attacked, although we are also being attacked now mm-hmm. and always. Um, and then also the movie Minari is coming out this week, which is about uh, the Korean-American Midwestern 80s experience, which, wow, layers of representation I didn't think that existed <laughs> or would exist. But yeah, so I was reading this profile on Stephen Young, who is uh, starring in the movie, and he had this quote that I think a lot of people have been sharing on like Asian social media is uh, sometimes I wonder if the Asian American experience is what it's like when you're thinking about everyone else but nobody else is thinking about you and at first when I read that I was like oh no I don't think that's that's true like that's not fair we're not no it's not like nobody's thinking about us and then I was talking to Kimberly and we were talking about like as a as like a group a lot of times now that is true yeah Except for when it comes to fetishization, then we're never left out. Yeah, I sent Kimberly a meme the other day that she hated, where it's from <laughs> Jessica Jones, and it's like it's like uh, David Tennant as Kilgore, and he's like standing next to Jessica Jones really threateningly, and so on his face it says, uh, "Reminder that libertarians with Asian wives are a whole category," and then. Uh, Jessica Jones's face just says, "Me just trying to live my life," <laughs> and it's like. That's its whole, like, white male, Asian female is its whole other other thing to unpack. Okay, you really didn't have to send that to me, like, first thing in the morning, though. That was, like, <laughs> it could have been safer a later part of the day when I was mentally prepared. <laughs> I'm not here to schedule your memes out for you. But that was a rude awakening, quite literally. Well, I'm glad I could contribute to your, you know, to your life. <laughs> Do we want to provide some resources a few additional resources because we're going to be listing a lot of them on friday more on that in the next episode in which we mostly just recount hilarious but problematic situations related to people being ignorant yeah we want to even in our distressed moments show you some asian joy on the lunar new year so (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that one's a little bit more lighthearted. But I would recommend like even just Wikipedia-ing Grace Lee Boggs, amazing Asian American hero. You might know that she was married to um, black activist Jimmy Boggs. Yes, they were really cool. I recently learned about her and I was reading, I think, an obituary about her mm-hmm. uh, and her life, which was super cool. And also Corky Lee died recently. He is probably like the Asian American photographer. He um, he took a lot of photos. He recreated photos of the um, when they finished the railroads. They took all these photos with a bunch of white railroad workers grinning and no Asians, even though many, many uh, Asian, many Chinese Americans died helping build the railroad uh, for shit wages. And uh, so he's recreated those photos with Asian Americans included. He took a very famous photo, actually, of um, 
a Sikh American wearing an American flag at right after 9-11. And basically, like, anytime there's been, like, big protests and activism, both related to Asian Americans and also generally, he has been the photographer of a lot of them. And I think for me, I very much associate Asian Americans with not really going out to protest or anything. So it feels very, like, meaningful. And it's a realization of how much history we don't pay attention to, to see photos of, like, little Asian grandmothers, like, out in Chinatown protesting and things like that, and realizing that Asian Americans have been in the fight for civil rights and that Asian Americans and Black Americans have been united, even though we don't really talk about it now or we pretend it didn't happen. If you want to diversify your perception of um, the Asian American community, I think we have seen like an uptick in media about East Asian Americans with like Minari, The Farewell, Crazy Rich Asians, and even like some TV shows like Fresh Off the Boat. But um, one that I discovered recently is a movie called Yellow Rose about a Filipina-American girl um, in Texas, and I believe her mother's undocumented, and her journey to try to become um, a country singer um, while also struggling with her identity. Oh, that's a lot of things. Yeah, that's interesting. yeah I really want to watch that movie if you uh, want to watch it with me sometime. Are you asking me out live? Yeah, Anson. Happy Valentine's Day. Uh, I'm good. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, another movie that I watched over the summer actually is called Gook. It's it's a movie that was made in 2017 by Justin Chong, who I remember seeing in Twilight. He was a very minor character in Twilight, but basically he's an actor. I don't know what else he's been in. Wait, where in but- Twilight? He's, like, one of her, like, two high school friends who says hi to her in, like, the cafeteria. Um, okay, wow. I literally that's think so that's the small. most famous thing I've seen him in. Yes. Uh, but basically, he's an actor, and he made this movie called Gook, which is about um, 19, the 1992 Los Angeles riots, and it follows these two Korean-Americans who are trying to run, like, a, a shoe store, and their kind of their friendship with a young black girl and their kind of relationship and the tensions with the black community. And I thought it was really interesting because honestly, like I said, I feel like I'm still kind of myself discovering like a lot of Asian American history. In some more recent synergy between black Americans and Asian people, I recently discovered that Barry Jenkins' film style in Moonlight was inspired by Wong Kar Wai, who directed In the Mood for Love, which is a pretty famous East Asian film. Um, I believe it's Cantonese. Also, Barry Jenkins and Lulu Wang are partners and also both great filmmakers, and I love that. Power couple. Yes. Oh, also, happy birthday to Anderson Pack. Did you see that oh. photo of him and his wife and... Their daughter, who's just so swagged out, like the coolest fucking child I've ever seen. Yes, I did see that. (laughs) I didn't realize it was his birthday today. I don't know if it's today. It might have been like yesterday, but he's 34, I believe. Anderson Pack is great. I like his music. Also a fun, okay, film-related story, though, Mm -hmm. real quick. So Ang Lee is a famous director. He directed The Life of Pi and and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and a couple other movies. So Ang Lee is like this Asian film director. He's Taiwanese. And 
there was a point a couple years ago where my mom, who she really doesn't watch movies that often, but she decided she's very big on like, oh, I want to watch all the things this one Asian person did. So she decided she was going to watch all of Ang Lee's movies because he's a famous Taiwanese director. But Ang Lee also directed Brokeback Mountain. Uh, <laughs> so, so my mom, like I come home one day and my mom is like, Look at this movie I got from the library. It's super <laughs> famous. Ang Lee directed it. I'm so excited. And like also like fame uh, was it isn't it Jake Gyllenhaal and uh Keith Ledger in it. So it's like, "Oh, these are famous actors. This Asian man made it." My mom was really excited and I was like, "Mom, like I don't think you're going to like it. Like it just isn't for you." I didn't I didn't want to be like, "I think you're not going to like it because it's about cowboys having gay sex." Not that my mom is homophobic. She's gotten better. She's gotten over that. But it's just like, you know, it's just not the thing that my my Asian mother wanted to watch. It's not specifically interesting to her. Yeah. So I was like, oh, like, you don't want to watch that. And she's like, what are you talking about? It's critically acclaimed. It's super famous. This Asian director made it. Like, it must be good. And I was like, okay, like, you do that. Whatever. And then a couple days later, she was like, I watched it, like... I don't think it's appropriate for you, you. You probably shouldn't watch. It's not appropriate for you. And I was like, okay, because of and the I just sex thought it was scenes? so funny. Yeah, like like it wasn't even like my mom was like, oh, I don't like that they're gay. She was just like, I don't like there are sex scenes. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was a funny. She was like pursuing the Asian American representation in media, <laughs> and she got to Brokeback Mountain. Because <laughs> I definitely think of Brokeback Mountain when I want Asian American media representation. I mean, it's cool that it was directed by a Taiwanese man. Yeah. What are some things that we can do that aren't just media representation? Because I feel like that's just the little toe in the in the puddle solutions. Yes. So I will link some GoFundMes that I've seen. So there was a fire that burned down the Vietnamese American Community mm-hmm. Center of the East Bay recently. And they are fundraising right now to help rebuild There's also some GoFundMes that will include that are for the families of some of the people who have been affected by the hate crimes. I think I've also seen some, like, general, like, East Asian progressives GoFundMes or, like, donation sites. There's also specifically one for Stop AAPI Hate, which is the reporting link that we have as an alternative to the police. Yes, because a lot of times the crimes aren't even reported, so then they can't even be tracked, so they're trying to sort of address that data gap there's also other things i'll link like the chinese progressive association the asian prisoner support committee filipino cultural center a lot of these are also based in california because california has many more asians uh there's also been a couple community uh sort of Uh, Groups that I've seen forming in places with big Chinatowns where it's people who are volunteering to accompany elderly people while they do their Chinatown shopping, especially for New Year, uh, so that they feel safer. What's the name of that one kind of old guy who is like, I don't back down. I'm going to be patrolling the streets of my Chinatown. And then a bunch of people have joined him and it's become like a little community watch group. I have not seen that. So okay, I, do not know. I will link that as well in the description, just so that you can see that. Yeah, there's um one by the um, Asian Pacific Environmental Network where they are helping. They're looking for volunteers for community safety things that I will also link. I think also if you don't if you don't want to or are unable to necessarily volunteer your time in that way. A lot, a lot, a lot of 
uh, Chinese restaurants especially have been particularly hard hit. It's Mm -hmm. already a terrible time to be a restaurant, but they've been particularly hard hit because even before restaurants shut down, people stopped going because of the associations to coronavirus. And since then, um, even though a lot of small Chinese restaurants, they are local businesses, they don't get the sort of love and the support that other local businesses have been getting. So if you can go eat some Chinese food, I love Chinese food. So it's a it's a win win. Chinese food is really tasty. So I feel like this isn't even like that much of a sacrifice. Yeah, like the next time you eat out, just uh, support a Chinese restaurant. That would be nice. Um, I will just link everything that I can think of in the description. Yeah, and if you're not Asian, I think it means something to the Asian people. Asian American people in your life when you share things like that. Like, I guess it shouldn't be like this, but I give people extra credit when they're not in the group and they like are big on like talking about issues for a group. As long as they're not centering themselves. Yes, it shouldn't be about you, but it like it, it means something different to me when like a white person is like, guys, we need to talk about anti-Asian racism. But maybe that's just because I've only seen Asian people talking about Honestly, Asian and Black activists talking about anti-Asian racism. Yeah, yeah. I've seen, like, Ayanna Presley retweeted stuff, and I've seen Questlove. people on Twitter. Yeah, people on Twitter who are Black or Asian have been tweeting about it, but I have not seen very many other people doing it. Not yet. Not until we release this episode and uh, convince everyone to stop being racist and Asians. Yeah, we're going to go nationwide with this episode, this extremely sad at the beginning episode. <laughs> Uh, that's fine. We we took a dip and then we we recovered. We recovered. Well, thanks for watching. Watching. I always say watching. Thanks for listening to this slightly more serious episode of Big Oofs Only. We hope you found it informational. Thanks for perceiving us. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Ooh. See you on Lunar New Year, right? Yeah. More on that in the next episode, in which we mostly just recount hilarious but problematic situations related to people being ignorant.